Luke 7, 36 through 50, it's printed in your bulletin. You can also read along in your own Bible. I'll read it aloud. This is the Word of God. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please be seated? And would you join me in prayer uh, for God's Word and its effect in our lives? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage from Luke chapter 7. We thank you for the work of your Son. We thank you for the power of forgiveness, which is His, the power to forgive sins. And we ask, Lord God, as we look at this passage, that You would speak to us through Your Spirit, that You would declare Your truth, that our hearts would be encouraged, lifted up, and challenged by Your Word. We thank You. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Before we begin, I was just thinking as we were sitting here, I, people are still trickling in, so if you're sitting together with your family, if you'd make sure that you could... Uh, squeeze together as much as possible. We want to free up any seats uh, for families and individuals who are coming. That would be great. As we look at this passage, there's this parable that Jesus gives in verse 41, and he says this, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them, Jesus says, which of them will love him more? This is a really interesting parable, is it not? 
There's a lot about the parable that's intriguing, some things we don't even understand, answers we never get. Like, for instance, the money lender. He seems to be fairly wealthy. He also seems to be significantly benevolent. For not only does he lend the money, but he forgives the debt. That's a big deal. Also about the debtors. How did they get in this much debt? What things have they been doing in their lives that have made them get in this precarious situation where they are indebted to the moneylender? See, all the questions, though, that run through our heads as we read the parable, it's interesting that Jesus ends this parable not with any of the questions that you might expect. Instead, He ends the parable by asking the question, which of the debtors would love the moneylender more? And that is an odd question. No one at the table with the Pharisee was speaking about love. Love had never come up in the conversation. It doesn't even seem intuitive in a conversation between a moneylender and a debtor. Yet Christ asks, which debtor would love the moneylender more? And you see, with this parable in Luke chapter 7, Jesus, the Son of God, begins to reorient our understanding of all of life, of goodness, of evil, of our acceptance before God, of our views of one another, reoriented in the course of three sentences in the parable in verse 41 and 42. Now, it all begins at this dinner. Now, if you didn't know, you would have probably assumed that this is just a normal dinner. You look at it, and it seems very mm, run-of-the-mill. Jesus is invited into a Pharisee's home, and he goes, and, and they're dining together. Nothing unusual about that, so it seems. But you have to understand that this dinner is apparently a fairly awkward dinner. There's a number of indications in the passage that tell us about the awkwardness of this dinner. The man is, to begin with, a Pharisee. And if you've read the Gospels, you know that the Pharisees are the chief antagonist of Jesus Christ. They're the ones trying to kill him. They're the ones who are trying to stump him, to prove him to be wrong. They're the ones who are looking for any mix-up, any misstep that he might have to pounce upon him and to expose him for the liar that they suppose that he is. So Jesus goes to dinner with a Pharisee. That's odd. But you also see it in the language of the conversation, right? You're reading the passage, and you look at the conversation that's being had between Jesus and the Pharisee, and it seems as if there's some tension in the conversation. For instance, the Pharisee says to him, well, Jesus, I suppose the one would love him who had more debt forgiven. But the language is meant to communicate the tension that is involved in that conversation. But the awkwardness of the dinner is probably most poignantly demonstrated not by what the Pharisee does, but by what the Pharisee does not do. Pharisee does not greet Jesus with a kiss, does not wash his feet with water, does not anoint him with oil. Now, I have to tell you, in a culture that held hospitality to be very high, these three things not to have been done for Jesus would have been extremely offensive. I kind of liken it to when you have someone over to your home for dinner and you greet them with a handshake and you take their jacket off and you hang it on the hook and you welcome them into your home, that for our culture 
is welcoming someone into the conversation. It's welcoming them into our personal space. It is greeting them as a friend. And when Jesus says in verse 44 that the Pharisee did none of these things for Jesus, it demonstrates the nature of the dinner conversation. It was tense. It might have been like an interrogation. It seemed hostile in nature. This indeed is a very awkward dinner conversation. Now, the only thing about this dinner that's not odd is the presence of the woman. Believe it or not, it's the presence of the woman. During this time, people would go from their homes to their courtyards to have dinner. They would mostly eat in their courtyards. And whenever you invited someone of significance into your home, a rabbi, a teacher, a Pharisee, a lawyer, you would leave the doors open so that those who were passing by could come in and hear the conversation, that they might gain from the wisdom and understanding of a conversation between a Pharisee and a rabbi. So I would imagine this dinner, that at this dinner there were many people coming and going, that as they saw the open door, they thought, oh, I wonder what's going on in there. Wonder what conversation is being had in there. And they would come in to gain from that conversation. And so the woman comes in. In verse 37, she's described as a woman of the city. A woman of the city, it says, a sinner. If you take the title that she's given in verse 37 and you couple that together with the way that the Pharisee treats her, it is fairly obvious that the woman who enters the home of the Pharisee is a prostitute. She's a prostitute. She's well known within the city. She enters into the home. She sees Jesus reclining at the table. She recognizes that he hasn't been welcomed into this home. His feet are not washed. He's not been anointed with oil. And she falls at his feet and she begins to weep over his feet. And with her tears and with her own hair, she's washing the feet of Jesus. Weeping in thanksgiving, in gratitude over the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisee finds it kind of odd. The Pharisee says to himself in this passage, now the actual uh, literal Greek says that he said within himself, which means he thought, okay? He thought to himself these things. And as he thought about the woman, he says, uh, now if this man, he said this in his mind, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And you see why the Pharisee thinks that of her, okay? It was obvious to him she is a sinner. Now, what I've done is I've, I've got this visual illustration. You know me, I love visual aids, okay? And I've got this visual illustration because I want to give you a picture of the understanding of, of what the Pharisee is speaking about when he says, well, why, why is this prophet uh, being touched by this woman, okay? The Pharisee has a view of inherent righteousness. Now, if you can't see it in the back, I've got a picture. I've got two pictures, actually, and they're filled with salt. Well, they're not filled. I tried to fill them, but I didn't have time this morning, okay? The Pharisee has a view of reality that I would call an inherent righteousness view. The view of the Pharisee is very simple, and it is this. We are born with a certain amount of righteousness, and as long as we're able to maintain that righteousness, we're doing well. 
And so the Pharisee, he has this view of his own life, okay, where he has inherent righteousness, and you know what? He knows that he is a sinner, but his sin is not that much. Maybe he's thought some bad thoughts. Maybe he hasn't treated his neighbor as he ought to all of the time. But he has a fairly good view of himself, and so he would view himself as losing some righteousness along the way. Maybe a little bit here and a little bit there. Maybe one year was worse than the other for the Pharisee, but by and large, he has retained his inherent righteousness. So he is good. Now, when the Pharisee looks at the woman, okay, the woman of the city, the one who he declares a sinner, you know how he views her? He views her as a woman who once had inherent righteousness, but along the way, her righteousness had been wasted away, and it had been left, and it, it had been spent. One day after another, she's violating the law of God, and her righteousness was being poured out until she was empty and devoid of her inherent righteousness. There was nothing left in her to satisfy God. There was no goodness that she could provide. There was nothing that she could give of evidence of her goodness. You see, in the mind of the Pharisee, it's almost like a simple math equation. This woman, let's say she had been doing the same work for 20 years. And he could say 20 years, for 365 days a year, she had been emptying out her inherent righteousness. Of course it was gone. Of course it had all been spent up. She was, to the Pharisee, the epitome of the violation of God's law. She was, as he said, a sinner. And he viewed himself not as a sinner. Now, this morning, that might seem a little bit odd to you, okay? As you read this, you might say, what in the world is that Pharisee thinking? But let me tell you, this is not as odd as you might first believe that it is. For this is the way that most of humanity approaches an understanding of life. We believe that we're born with an inherent righteousness. And if we can simply maintain that righteousness, then we're doing well. You would, I would assume that most of you in this room would probably approach life saying, I'm a pretty good person. Okay? You know what? I, I, uh, I treat other people well. I'm well spoken of in my community. I take my neighbor lady's trash in and out sometimes. I give money to St. Jude's Children's Hospital. I tithe at my church. I mean, these are the things that we think of when we think about maintaining our inherent righteousness. This is the very idea that Jesus is challenging in the mind of the Pharisee this morning. And Jesus, in this parable, in verse 41, says to the Pharisee and to the woman, a certain moneylender had two debtors who owed 500 denarii and the other 50, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? Let me tell you a few interesting things about that parable that are going to totally reshape the Pharisee's understanding of the world. First of all, he describes both the Pharisee and the woman both as debtors. That's interesting, okay? Pharisee wouldn't have thought of himself as a debtor. We don't often think of ourselves as debtors. But Christ describes them both as debtors. Now, I have to tell you, if you're reading this passage, especially in the context of first century Palestine, 
you have to realize that to be a debtor was a really bad thing, okay? The Jewish law commanded the Israelites not to be indebted, all right? Uh, it was looked down upon certainly within Jewish society. In, in Roman law, if you accrued this much debt, 50 or 500 denarii, you would actually be prosecuted by law. You would be thrown into prison or enslaved if you were unable to pay this debt. This is a significant deal. Now, Jesus begins by describing both the Pharisee and the woman as debtors. He begins to reorient his understanding of the world by saying, listen, you, you both, you have nothing. You bring nothing to the table. So Christ describes both the Pharisee and the woman as having no inherent righteousness of their own. They're debtors. They're empty and devoid of paying their own needs. They're at the whim or the mercy of the moneylender. They're in a very bad way, in a predicament of sorts, by being described as debtors. And so Jesus would say to the Pharisee, listen, you have no inherent righteousness. You bring nothing of your own to the table. And the second thing about the nature of the debtors is that they are indeed indebted. So not only do they bring no righteousness of their own, but they find themselves owing something to another. And the parable of the moneylender is the representative figure of our God. And the debtors, they find themselves owing the moneylender. The picture throughout all of Scripture is that human beings created in the image of God to function as He made us, to worship Him perfectly, to love and glorify only Him, that by sinning we begin to create a spiritual indebtedness. This is how this works. It's very simple. You see, God from the beginning in the garden tells us that the penalty of sin is death, that the wages of sin is death. But you see, God in His infinite grace and mercy, when we sin, He doesn't immediately give us the penalty of death, thankfully not. But what that begins to do is it creates a cosmic or a spiritual indebtedness, okay? The picture that Christ begins to provide of the woman and the Pharisee is not of some inherent righteousness in and of themselves, but it is one where they have no righteousness and they are instead accruing a spiritual debt. One that is owed to the Father. Now, as you think about the woman, it is obvious from this story that she is one who owes a lot of debt. She has a spiritual indebtedness. The beauty of this passage is that Jesus does not try to negate her failures. He does not say to the Pharisee, listen, the woman is not as bad as you think she is. He never tries to do that. As a matter of fact, he describes her as a woman who owed 500 denarii as a debtor. The picture of the woman is one who is overflowing with spiritual indebtedness. Again, she had broken the law of God again and again until she began to owe more in her spiritual indebtedness than she could ever repay. You see, the revelation of this passage is not just that the woman was a sinner, the revelation, the great huge revelation of this passage is that the Pharisee was as well. 
I don't know why he didn't view himself as a sinner, but the revelation of Christ is that, Pharisee, you have no righteousness of your own, and as a matter of fact, you too have been accruing a cosmic or a spiritual indebtedness to the Father. Now, we know all along in the Gospels that Jesus has been expanding our view of sin, hasn't He? For He said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you the truth, if you hate your brother in your heart, you are guilty of murder. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I tell you the truth, if you look upon a woman in your heart, you are guilty of committing adultery. So Christ, along the way, has been expanding our view of sin, and Jesus now says to the Pharisee, you as well have a spiritual indebtedness. Now, significantly in this passage, I don't know if you, if you realize this, but the, the, the amount of money that the debtors owe, it's actually a really significant amount of money, whether it's 50 or 500, okay? Uh, a, a denarii is more than a day's wages in Palestine. And no one in their right mind during this day and age was borrowing 50 denarii, let alone 500 denarii. I don't know why anybody would even have the, the necessity of borrowing that much money. But you see, what Jesus is doing in this parable is very simple. It's kind of like this. If I told you I had a million dollars in credit card debt, and you told me, well, that's nothing. I've got $10 million in credit card debt. And a third person says, you're both fools. Okay? You'll never repay that money. That's that is the exact analogy that Christ is giving in His parable. For the Pharisee who looks at the woman and perceives her to be a sinner, guilty of God's judgment, not deserving of His love, Jesus says, you too are indebted to the Father. And the distinction in this parable is not one of who has sinned more but it is the distinction of perception. Who perceives their own need? The woman's need is ever before her. She realizes every day that she goes to work that she is desperately needy. That she has broken the law of God. That she has created a spiritual indebtedness. But you see, this passage reveals what these two have in common. They are indebted, and as Christ says in His parable in verse 42, when they could not pay, He canceled the debt of both of them. When they could not pay, the actual original language says when they had no means of ever repaying the debt, the moneylender canceled their debt. When they had no means of ever repaying the debt. The, the message in the parable is very simple. It's one that says this. The two debtors, they don't got the money to repay, but they don't even got a plan. They have no potential for work. They have no worldly idea ever of how they'll repay this debt. It was not possible in their world. And so the moneylender forgave them of their debt. One of the questions I want to ask you this morning is very simple. If each of us, without any inherent righteousness of our own, 
has accrued a spiritual or a cosmic indebtedness to God because we violate His law in our hearts and in our deeds, then how do you propose we repay that spiritual debt? I think about it. What ideas do you have for repaying the God of the universe? There's no cosmic credit cards. There's no checkbook for you to write a check from. We have no way of even beginning to conceive of how to repay this debt. It is not possible for us to satisfy this debt. The big difference between the woman and the Pharisee is that the woman gets this. Again, her bucket is full. Her sin is before her. She knows that she can no way repay this great debt. The Pharisee instead has a version of holiness that lets him think that he lives debt-free. It's kind of like, I, I used to have, one time I worked for this company a long time ago, and they ended up going defunct and bankrupt, but they had this really bad habit. When they got behind on bills, they would stuff the bills behind the couch in the office, okay? Now, I know that sounds silly, but I know people who do this, right? The bills are adding up, and you just can't even look at them, and so what do you do? You just make them go somewhere else. It doesn't do away with the debt, right? It's like the Pharisee. He's the one who's saying, okay, if I can't see it, I'm good to go. I don't talk about it. We act as if we've achieved some inherent righteousness. And let's not talk about the spiritual indebtedness that has been accrued by God. And they find themselves in the unenviable position of being self-deceived and desperately needing to be awakened to their indebtedness. Now, this is where the story this morning connects with Easter, okay? This story actually has a very powerful connection with what happens on Easter morning. You see, because the people at this dinner, when Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven, which is his resolution of the spiritual indebtedness that he speaks about in the parable. When he says your sins are forgiven, the people have at least two big questions in their mind. And I imagine them going like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And the one big question is this. You've just told us about this parable, a moneylender and two debtors. But, Jesus, you've forgotten the fact that only the moneylender can forgive the debt. That's the one thing that sits kind of strangely in their minds. It's kind of, you could imagine, if you, uh, all you who have mortgages... If you wrote a letter to your mortgage company next month and said, hey, just want to let you know my debt's forgiven, okay? I don't have to pay anymore because I have said the debt is forgiven. Your mortgage company will say, thanks for the letter. Here's your next payment due date, okay? That's the first question looming in their minds. If God is the moneylender, if we are spiritually indebted to him, then by saying your sins are forgiven, Jesus is making a statement that must be reconciled with. And this, as it connects to Easter, is the reason they would crucify him. For he claimed to be God and to have the power to forgive the sins of men. Spiritual cosmic indebtedness that had been accruing since the beginning of time. Indebtedness from Abraham uh, to the Apostle Paul, even to today for you and I, that had been adding up over time layers and layers of indebtedness that was due the wrath and the penalty of God. Judgment, just judgment, the penalty of sin. Jesus says, I cancel 
I forgive. He says to the woman, your sins are gone. You've been forgiven. And that's the first question they would have had to wrestle with. Who is this that has the power to forgive sins? Who is this that says your sins are forgiven? Go in peace. The second question they would have asked maybe equally as complex in their minds, is if they saw Christ with eyes of faith and they recognized Him as very God of very God, even if they knew Him to be the Savior of sinners, they would ask a second question and it was very simple. How have you done away with sin? For we know that the Lord God has revealed Himself as one who will surely not overlook our sins. After all, that's what it says in Exodus chapter 34. I am a God who brings condemnation to the second and third generation, for I will surely not overlook their sins. And the question, second question that they would be wondering is, how in the world have sins been forgiven? God cannot turn His back on sin. He cannot act as if it doesn't exist. He will not turn a blind eye. He always brings justice to bear on the wrongs that have been done, the cosmic wrong. And so the things that are declared by Christ in this passage, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. Not only possible because Christ just canceled the debt as a moneylender did, but because Christ took the debt upon Himself. Jesus was speaking truth that would be demonstrated and made effective by His death on the cross. And the message of Jesus is very simple. And this is why the parable of the moneylender is so crucial. The message of Jesus is that those who come with spiritual indebtedness to God, that has been building up over our entire lives, who come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, have their debt poured onto the Son of God. And He takes upon Himself the sin of His children, and it piles up upon Him, and He takes it with Him to the cross. And He experiences the wrath of God, right? The just judgment, the penalty that was due for us. That is, the, the wages of sin is death, okay? For every one who would come to him by faith, he takes the sin upon himself. He experiences the penalty of God, the wrath of the Father completely poured out upon him. And what does he do? Not only does he take our sin, but his righteousness is then given to us. Not an inherent righteousness that we are born with, but a righteousness that is Christ's that then becomes ours. The sin is taken away. The sin is forgiven in the body of Christ. The righteousness is imputed to us. Therefore, Jesus can say to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. There's no peace without righteousness. There's no peace without reconciliation. This is what Christ is speaking about at this dinner with the Pharisees. This is the foreshadow of everything we celebrate at Easter. 
Here's the final thing I, I want you to remember about this passage. Why does Jesus forgive the sins of the woman? Why does he forgive the sins of anyone? Lots of ways we could answer that question. His love, the plans of the Father, foreordained since the beginning of time. But you're reading this passage, Jesus says why he forgives the sin of the woman. Why does he do it? In the parable, he asks the question, who will love the moneylender more? See, the thrust of this passage is that the, the sins of the woman, which were many, are forgiven so that she would love the Father. And I tell you the truth this morning as we think about Easter Sunday, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He went to the cross to die for us. He loved us so much, and He carried out the plans of the Father. But one of the most important things we gather from this passage this morning is that He has given Himself a ransom for many. He's broken His body. He's poured out His blood for us so that we might love the Father. So that there might be gratitude in our hearts, thanksgiving in our words, that we might declare His praises. So God, God the Father has been setting aside a people for Himself. By the love of Christ Jesus, we come to Him in thanksgiving. The most beautiful picture this morning is that picture of the woman falling at the feet of Jesus. She falls with overwhelming gratitude and thanksgiving, worshiping Him, washing His feet, for her sins, which were many, are forgiven. How do you spiritually perceive your own needs? Do you see yourself as having some inherent righteousness, a manageable amount of sin, or be tweaked here and adjusted there? Or do you see yourself as one who is full of sin, desperately needing a Savior? The Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven that debt. He has done so that we might worship the Father. So let us continue our worship this morning. Would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ went to the cross, that he was crucified in the course of history. We thank you that he carried out all that was necessary. Living a righteous life, taking upon himself our sin, being nailed to